I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 30. We are finally getting to the good news. The, the bad news is really, really bad. Man stands on trial. The prosecutor has done his job well. The law of God's court is clear. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sights. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The man has made a feeble defense. His family and supporters hang their heads. The judge's decision is clear. By all the rules of goodness and justice, the man should be declared guilty, then condemned to punishment. The man is me. And I can imagine back when boys sold newspapers on the street corner. This just out. Read all about it. Read all about it. Surprise verdict. Guilty man, freed of all charges, declared righteous in the court, family rejoices, the opposition bows an inquiry into the judge's ruling, get the news here, read all about it, surprise verdict. It's really shocking. It runs contrary to all the evidence that we've seen in chapters 1, 2, and 3. It's Is it a travesty of judgment, or is there some deeper law of justice at work? How do we get from so clearly guilty to innocent? How is the news good? This is Romans three twenty one to 30, and it is one of the most important texts in the New Testament about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We get the details of what happened on the cross elsewhere. Here we're told how it works. How is it that the cross of Jesus Christ actually saves sinful man from the justice of God without God himself being guilty of unrighteously ignoring sin? It's a critical passage in our Bibles, and one we must not underestimate. It's also a passage loaded with theological terms, especially in the first half. So I'm going to divide the text into two parts. 21 through 25a will be part 1, and 25b through 30 will be part 2. In the first part, we'll consider five important theological words or phrases that help us understand how it is that the gospel saves. Then we'll conclude with the second part of the text. So, first part, five terms. These are going to be the righteousness of God, grace, justified, redeemed, and propitiation. So, five theological words all in the first part. We're going to go through that. So, let's read the first part, 21 through 25a. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. In Paul's thesis for Romans in 116-17, he declared that the reason he's not ashamed of the gospel is that it is the power of salvation And the reason it is God's power for salvation is that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's our first phrase, first theological phrase, righteousness of God. And for a discussion on the different meanings of righteousness of God, I'll let you go back to that lesson on on chapter 1, 16 to 17. It was the third lesson of our introduction, the thesis lesson. The most important part of that discussion is to recognize that righteousness of God can be something that applies to God or something that applies to man. And Paul uses it both ways in these first four chapters in Roman. He's either talking about God or he's talking about man when he's talking about the righteousness of God. N.T. Wright offers a helpful illustration, as long as we recognize the limits of the illustration. 
he points out that in a courtroom, the righteous, the righteousness of the judge is different from the righteousness of the defendant. So a, a judge is shown to be righteous if he's upright, fair, just in his judgments. You know, he's righteous if he takes no bribes and shows no bias. A defendant is righteous in court if he's innocent. Well, that's the first way. Either he's innocent before the court, or if he's found guilty and is able to pay his fine, then he's he's declared righteous in the eyes of the court. So you're either innocent or you pay the fine. And the way this the way this illustration is taking too far is is to point out these two very different kinds of righteousness: the righteousness of the judge and the righteousness of the defendant, and to say that they're so completely different that it's impossible for the judge to give his righteousness to the defendant. And then in that conclude that it's impossible for God to give his righteousness to man. So if we take this illustration, which is helpful, but if if we take it too far to say that it is not possible for the righteousness of God to be applied to man, then we're missing out on a the a central a teaching that's coming in this passage, which is is the fact that the righteous status of God is something received by faith. It has to be able to apply to man if we receive it. And the mistake is is limiting God's role to that of a judge. So that's it's helpful in the illustration, but God's not just a judge. God also became man and lived a righteous life and died on a cross. So it might be right to say the righteousness of the judge doesn't apply to the defendant, but that's not the righteous substitution. The righteousness of God that applies to the defendant is the righteousness of the second Adam who fully lived out a human life, who died on a cross, who rose again, who's eternal, he becomes our substitute. And that's the righteous status that is then credited to us. It can be hard to get our minds around the full range of meaning in Paul's one phrase, the righteousness of God. And we see that range through these chapters. But consider this, the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel by the righteous decision to demand payment for sin, God is righteous in his wrath against sin by the righteous character lived out as a man, by righteous action carried out on the cross, and by righteous status offered freely to the sinner. So how does that, how does that all work? Well, let's follow the text to see. So in verse 21 starts out, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. This is that language back in, in chapter 116 and 17. Again, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed or manifested or made known. So the, the but now apart from law implies two things that are true. First, the law has never fully manifested to us how it is that the righteous action of God is going to save mankind. So Paul does say that it's witnessed to by the law and the prophets. So there's the mystery is hinted at or, or foreshadowed. It's just not clearly manifested. So the Passover lamb described in the law of Moses witnesses the need of a true lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Or an example from the prophets, Isaiah indicates that the glorious Messiah will also be the suffering servant, that he'll be pierced through for our transgressions. He'll be crushed for our iniquities. And though we might, we might get all that now, you know, as we look back, we understand Lamb of God, Jesus, suffering servant, Jesus. But nobody clearly saw in the Old Testament, how is it that God's going to do this? 
They didn't see that God himself was going to become a man, die on a cross to satisfy justice. But now apart from the law, we see it. It's been made known to us by the witness of the apostles in the New Testament. We have a new manifestation of the gospel that explains how it works through Jesus on the cross. Second, not only is this righteousness manifested or made known apart from the law, it is also a righteousness of God that comes to man apart from doing the law. So the law holds up a vision of the righteous character of God. When you look at the law, you can, you can see the righteousness of God that he, would, that he would call us to live out, but it's a righteousness we can't obtain. But now, apart from law, a different righteousness of God has been made known. There is another option, another way, which is a good thing since the righteousness of God described in the law is unattainable. Now, this, this righteousness apart from the law is not new. That would be a mistake to think that there was a, a righteousness of the law that was for Old Testament saints, and now there's a righteousness of the law by grace for New Testament saints. No, that's not right. Uh, Paul is going to argue in chapter 4 that, that this way is the same way that Abraham was declared righteous. The way of grace is not new. The way of grace has always been the way, at least since the fall of Adam and Eve. So the way is not new. What is new is that the way has now finally been accomplished. Before it was a promise. God will make a way. Trust God that he's going to make a way. What way? We don't know. There's going to be a way. It's for it's something to do with sacrifice, something to do with a lamb. I don't know, but he's going to make a way, and we have to trust him. Now the way of grace is both made known and also accomplished. It has been completed in Jesus Christ. The new way is now fully, it's not just a promise, it's a reality. So in verse 22 tells us how this righteousness of God comes to be applied to a human being. It's been, man, it's been made manifest, and it's through faith in Jesus that it applies to us. And faith is, faith is clearly a central part of this crucial passage of Scripture, because it's mentioned eight times in just ten verses. In fact, it sounds here in verse 22 like Paul is even being redundant about it. He says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. So why add for all those who believe? You know, it sounds like he's saying the same thing twice. It's for faith to those who believe. But he's not saying the same thing twice. In the restatement, he adds that phrase, all those. And that's that's where we should put the emphasis on the second part of the verse. We, we should say it something like this. The righteousness of God comes through faith in Jesus Christ, not just for some, not just for Jews, not just for Gentiles, but for all those who believe. So just as all men, every single one, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, so also the potential to receive the righteousness of God is open to all those who would believe. Our next theological term is justified. And this is a term we've been using a lot already. In fact, I've titled this section of Romans from 118 to 425, God justifies by faith. There's good reason for that. It'd be wrong to say that all of Romans is about justification by faith. All of Romans is about the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's broader than justification. Paul uses the verb to justify 15 times in Romans. Nine of those occur in this section of 1 through 4, and all of the other six occur in chapter 5, which is serving as a transitional passage from this section to the next. After chapter 5, the verb justify doesn't appear in Romans. 
So we can safely say that justification is a major theme of this first section, chapters 1 through 4. The same is also true for the word faith. Paul uses faith 60 times in Romans, with over half of that 34 times in these first four chapters. So that's not to say that faith is not important throughout the whole letter. It's simply to affirm the point that this first section of Romans places particular emphasis on the fact that God justifies human beings by faith. We've already used the term a lot, but we've not defined it precisely. In English, the word justify and the word righteousness look and sound like two very different words, justify, righteousness. No connection there. In Greek, the two words come from the same root, dikaios, which means righteous. So to justify is dikaio, and righteousness is dikaiosune. You can hear the dikai in both. So the verb justify means to make or declare righteous. And here in Paul's courtroom context, the meaning is not to make righteous, but to declare righteous. There are two ways for a defendant to be declared righteous. Either the judge finds the defendant is not guilty of any crime, or the judge finds that the defendant has paid the penalty for his crimes. In either case, the person is declared to be in the right in the eyes of the court, that is, to be justified. Well, we're certainly not innocent, so the first doesn't apply, but then we we also can't pay our penalty and still be in relationship with God. So according to Romans 6.23, the penalty of sin is death. That's not just physical, it's also spiritual. It's a, a spiritual separation from God. But if, if the penalty the court demands is my separation from God, I can't pay that penalty, being separate from God, and also be in relationship with God. I can't pay my own penalty. And this leads us to our next very important theological word, grace. Grace is a very religious word that every Christian's familiar with, but what does it mean? Verse 24 says that we are justified as a gift by God's grace. And that gives us that gives us the definition. Grace is a gift that we receive. It's something God does for us. That does not at all mean it's cheap or inexpensive. The gift may come at an extremely high price, but if it is offered by grace, it's offered free of charge to the recipient. So this moves us a step further along. We are declared righteous not because we're innocent, not because we've paid the price, but as a gift of grace, someone else has paid the price on our behalf. That brings us to our fourth word, the word redemption. And redemption means to buy back, to buy back a slave. It's less of a legal word like justifying. It's more of an economics word. So in our modern English usage, the word comes when you pawn something. So if you've ever seen pawn stars, if you you pawn something and you want to get it back, you've got to redeem it. You've got to buy it back. In the legal context here, a payment must be made to the court for our sin. There's a price set on our freedom. God can only justify or declare you righteous if your debt is paid but you can't pay your own debt. The price is eternal death. This idea of redemption has a lot of biblical richness to it. Going back into the Old Covenant, God created an analogy for us in the Mosaic Law because he he described his deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt as a redemption. So the people were forced into bondage, and God redeemed them. And God adds on to this idea as the Israelites are preparing to leave Mount Sinai. There's a story in Numbers chapter 3, verses 40 to 51. God told them that they owed him for every firstborn son that he did not kill when the angel of death passed over Egypt. Which is interesting. If you remember the story, the firstborn sons were killed in the last plague. 
but they they weren't killed because the Jews were told to sacrifice a Passover lamb and to put the blood above the door. And when the angel of wrath passed over, he saw that the blood covered the Israelite household, and so the firstborn's life was not taken. But in Numbers chapter 3, God has a further lesson to teach. There's further symbolism he wants to add to this idea of redemption. The blood of the lamb did not really protect the firstborn sons of Israel. It was symbolic, but not effective. It didn't really take care of their own sin. God added on an additional symbol to make this point. He told the Israelites, you need to set aside all the men of the tribe of Levi as payment for all these firstborn sons, one man for one man. The Levites would be a substitute. And they they ended up with a bit of a problem because there were 273 more firstborn Israelites than there were Levites. But since it was only symbolic, God God let them get out of it with a, a financial payment for the excess number of firstborns. But what God did here was to invest the word redemption with theological meaning. God is the one who rescues out of slavery. God redeems with his righteous power, but he also demands payment, a life for a life. And who can pay our debt? Well, what does verse 24 say? We are justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. So notice it's not quite correct to say here that Jesus pays our debt for us. It's more correct to say that Jesus is the payment of our debt. And I I guess it would be fine to say both. Jesus pays, and he pays by offering up himself as a sacrifice of atonement. This brings us to our final theological term. The NASB Bible translates verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. The NIV has God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement, and the Net Bible has God publicly displayed him at his death as the mercy seat. So the English Bibles are giving us three options for one word. We have propitiation, or sacrifice of atonement, or mercy seat. You know, so how do we understand this? The word Paul uses here in the Greek is hilasterion, but it's not really a Greek word. It's, it's just a Hebrew word that's been spelled out in the Greek, and it's a Hebrew word that's used in Leviticus 16. There's an example in Leviticus 16:15 to describe the cover over the Ark of the Covenant. And the word doesn't really mean, it doesn't mean cover. Um, it's, it's sometimes it's called the mercy seat, but it's, it really refers to the sacrifice of atonement that took place in connection with the Ark. And this idea of atonement carries both the meaning to cover over, our sin is covered over, and also our, the wrath of God is satisfied by an atonement. So that, that's what propitiation means. To propitiate means to satisfy or turn away the wrath of God. The sacrifice of atonement described in Leviticus 16 took place once a year to atone for the sins of Israel. So one goat was released into the wilderness, and that symbolized God removing sin from the camp. But a second goat was taken and sacrificed, and its blood was then sprinkled in the Holy of Holies on the Ark of the Covenant. And that, that was the innermost room in the tabernacle of God. It was the most holy room where the high priest only entered on this one day for this one sacrifice. The Holy of Holies symbolized the throne room of God with God's presence above the Ark of the Covenant looking down on it. And the Ark contained the law of God placed there by Moses. And as God looked down on the covenant, he judged his people Israel and he judged them unfaithful. They were covenant breakers. And on that day, when when the high priest came in, he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. 
it made a covering over the law. And God looked down and he saw the blood and he saw the people deserve death, but he saw that a death was paid. As a result, the holy and just wrath of God was propitiated, satisfied, atoned for, paid. Did the blood of the goat truly pay for the sins of men? No. Neither did the lamb of the Passover, nor the trade of one Levite for one firstborn Israelite, neither does baptism, neither does Lord's Supper. All of our rituals teach us and point us to the one true sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. To take our place and pay for our sin, we need a man for a man. But no man can pay for my sin because he's got to pay for his own sin. We need, I need a sinless man, but one sinless man would pay only for the sins of one other man. So if we're all going to be saved, we need an infinite sinless man. We need a man who's God. We need Jesus. For we are justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That's what happened on the cross. The blood of bulls and goats and lambs has always been symbolic, never effective. Always reminding us that death is owed and death must be paid and that God is going to find a way to pay it. How is the gospel, how is the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is revealed by our God who will not declare a man righteous unless that man's sin has been paid for. And so he offered himself as payment for man's sin. That's the gift of grace, priceless, yet offered without price. That's the righteousness of God revealed, his righteous character leading to a righteous judgment followed by a righteous action in which he is the righteous sacrifice resulting in righteousness being credited to sinful man by grace through faith. Now we can finally answer our two questions of covenant that I raised in the last two lessons. The first question of covenant is what makes me acceptable to be in relationship with God? And I asked you to think about that in terms of grace, what God does, and law, what we do. What percentage would you give to grace and what percentage to law in answering this question? What makes me acceptable to be in relationship with God? In our last lesson, the middle of chapter 3, Paul made quite clear what percentage we're to attribute to law. Zero percent. By the work of the law, no flesh will be declared righteous. Now we have the percentage for grace. A hundred percent. That's the answer to the first question of covenant. We are declared righteous, made acceptable to be in relationship with God. A hundred percent by the free gift of grace that he offers to us. Zero percent by our own moral or religious work. Someone might say that the law has a role because verse 20 says the law reveals our sin. And that's a good point. The law does have a role, but that, that agrees with my answer. The question was about our doing of the law. How much of our doing of the law contributes to our righteousness or our acceptability in the eyes of God? And that's 0%. So either we take the moral religious defense by which we show ourselves good enough, or we take the grace defense. The moral defense says, I will pay the penalty of my own sin. But that lowers the holiness of God and it lowers the penalty of sin as though some good works, prayer, sacrifice, Bible reading, taking the Lord's Supper could somehow pay for my sin against an eternal and holy God. The moral defense always fails. And it, it reminds me of that, that proud and tragic song of the 20th century, 
I did it my way. Yes, you did. And you're lost forever. We've been given another option, a second defense, the grace defense. Lord God, I'm guilty. I have no hope of paying the penalty of my sin. I believe that Jesus paid that penalty for me. I accept your gift of grace. Please count me righteous based on what Jesus has done, not on what I deserve. Is that the attitude of your heart? Is that what you believe? Do you have that faith? Do you see that? Has God opened your eyes to see that? Listen again, and is this the attitude of your heart? If it is, you need to say this to God. Because the grace of God, the status of righteousness, comes by an act of faith, an act of will, when you receive what he's offering. He's holding it out to everybody. But if you don't take it, if you don't receive it, it's not true of you. If you don't receive it, you're standing on your own moral religious defense. But when you say that won't work and you're willing to receive his grace, then his righteousness applies to you. So let me read it again. And if this is the attitude of your heart, say this to God. And if you're not sure you've said it to God, then say it to God. Be sure. Here it is. Listen to this. Lord God, I'm guilty. I have no hope of paying the penalty of my sin. I believe that Jesus paid the penalty for me. I accept your gift of grace. Gratefully, I accept it. Please count me righteous based on what Jesus has done, not on what I deserve. Amen. So upon receiving that gift of grace through faith, you are declared righteous. 100% grace, 0% law. There is no wiggle room here. We're tempted. We're always tempted to add things to grace. We feel like we've got to do something to make ourselves acceptable. And, and the human heart wants to make it grace plus. And Paul comments on that idea later in Romans eleven six. I'll quote it here just to be clear right now. 11.6, if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. You can't have grace plus. Grace plus anything else is law. The only right answer in the court of God is 0% law, nothing I do, 100% grace. It fully comes from God. Which of your sins did Jesus not die for? What sin did he not cover? Is his is his substitution, is his sacrifice for you incomplete? If you have received the gift of grace, then he's paid for every sin 100%. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Any other answer is a misunderstanding or a rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So now let's, let's mention the second question of covenant. Having been accepted by grace into relationship with God, how do I please God? You know, this is the heart of the one who has saving faith. Faith is seeing God and receiving the gift of grace he's offered. Faith moves the believer to respond. So the believer asks this second question of covenant from a grateful heart. How do I please you? In other words, how do I show my love to you as my heavenly father? How do I worship you as my God? How do I serve you as my king? And this question admittedly is a lot messier than the first question. That's because the first question occurs in a legal context, and there's a right, wrong, black and white answer, 100% grace, 0% law, no wiggle room. The second question's asking how we live out relationship with our gracious God, and relationship is always messier. 
In fact, I don't even like answering this question in percentages. But since I'm the one who told you to answer it that way, I guess I, I have to give you an answer. So I'll give you what I call the marriage conference answer. Pleasing God with our lives involves 100% grace and 100% law. That is, God gives 100% of himself. You give 100% of yourself. And I, I know that sounds like cheating and it's bad mathematics, but that's what we're going to go with. Because any idea, like a 50-50 idea in relationship, never really works. Because each person never feels like the other person is really giving their 50%. So and even if we make it 80-20 or 10-90, we, we never really feel like the other person is living up. And it becomes a business relationship, a legal relationship. And, and then we're going to have to get lawyers involved again to prove who's done what. But let's be done with the lawyers. This is, this is family relationship. This is love relationship that we're in now with God. He's our father. He's our king. He's our God. How do we live out that relationship? And we can be sure. We don't have to argue about it. We can be sure that God gives 100% of himself, 100% of grace. What God gives is complete. It's not always in the way we want it. It's not always in a way that's obvious, but it's always in the way that's best, good, and truly loving. And then on our side, for our part, we never give 100%. You know, God is calling us to press ahead, to be involved in becoming who he's created us to be, to pursue him with all our mind, heart, soul, and strength, all we have, not to earn relationship, but to express relationship and to experience relationship. And we can't do this in our flesh. That's one of the messy things. So I am saying that we, when I use the word law here, if I mean that's something we accomplish out of our own strength, then I'm wrong. You can critique me. I shouldn't have said it. I'm I'm wrong. Law doesn't mean that I do it out of my own human flesh. But but by law, what I mean, I'm just trying to express obedience to command, that there are things that God has called us to do. We're called to participate. It's what Jesus says in John 14, that if we really love God, we're going to obey his commandments. And we have to figure out some way to get commandments into our life of grace Otherwise, we can't make sense of the Sermon on the Mount or Romans 12 through 14 or all the do's and don'ts in the New, in the new Covenant. So that there are two different mistakes we can make. One mistake is to say that grace leads to no law in the sense of no obedience to commandment. We're, we're so happy about being free that we give no place to the do's and the don'ts. Another mistake that we can make is to create a new Christian law. So something that feels and tastes and smells very much like... Uh, Old Testament religion, maybe not so serious or so ritualistic, but we're creating all these do's and don'ts that you have to do to to live up, to be accepted. But there is a narrow path between the two, a living in the grace of God, a living out the grace of God, a new way of the Spirit, and how that works is messy. It's relationship, after all. It's going to be messy. And I'm not going to go into that anymore right now because Paul is going to address the whole issue in Romans chapter 5 through 8. So we're going to get there and we're going to spend a lot of time there. How do we live out grace? Very important. But first we need to conclude chapter 3 and then we're going to have to move into chapter 4 where Paul gives his precedent, his support for this surprise verdict in chapter 3. So let's, let's finish out chapter 3. So now we're going to conclude with some implications of the gospel that Paul highlights in the second half of the passage. So 25b through verse 30, and that the gospel of grace presents us with a very serious problem. It's the problem of the righteous judge. So if if God freely forgives us of our sin, does that make him unrighteous? 
Does God have the right to forgive evil man without requiring payment or restitution from that man? Is it is it allowable for God to offer us grace freely? And there was a famous 20th century book called Sunflower written by Simon Wiesenthal where he we, he raises this question, who has the right to forgive an evil man? In the book, Wiesenthal describes being taken taken one day from his prison camp to work in a German hospital. And as Wiesenthal was working, a nurse came up and asked, are you a Jew? He said, yes. And she motioned him to follow her and she led him into a room. She instructed him to enter and lying alone was a man whose face was completely bandaged. Wiesenthal went over to the man and he, the man took his hand and the sick man whispered, I've not much longer to live. I know the end is near. My name is Carl. I joined the SS as a volunteer. I must tell you something dreadful. Wiesenthal began to worry that he'd be missed and he only wanted the nurse to come back so he could leave. But the soldier clung to his hand and continued with his story. He described growing up in Germany and his father was a social democrat. His mother was very religious. She brought him up in the church, but when he joined the Hitler youth, he stopped going to church and his mother and father became nervous around him, not knowing if he would repeat to the Hitler youth what they were saying at home. After completing his training, his company was sent to Ukraine to fight Russians. In one city, he says, we were taken to a square full of Jews. And Carl explains there were 150 of them, or perhaps 200, including many children with anxious eyes. A truck arrived with cans of petrol, which we unloaded and took into a house. Then we began to drive Jews into the house, and I I wouldn't believe it possible to crowd them all into it. And this story sounded too familiar to Wiesenthal, so he stood up to leave. Carl, his body shivering, pleaded, please stay, I, I must tell you the rest. Another truck came full of more Jews, and we crammed them into the house, and we removed the safety pins from hand grenades and threw them through the windows. We heard screams and saw the flames eat away from floor to floor. We had our rifles ready to shoot down anyone who tried to escape, and I saw a man with a small child in his arms and a woman jumping from the building. Carl fell silent, exhausted. Wiesenthal stood up to go, but Carl gripped his hand fast. Carl explained how later a bomb had nearly hit him and it sent shrapnel through his eyes and into his face and his body. He was blind and he was dying. Carl continued, I'm left here with my guilt. In the last hours of my life, you are the one with me. I do not know who you are. I only know that you're a Jew and that's enough. I want to die in peace. I have longed to talk about it to a Jew and beg forgiveness. I know what I'm asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. What do you think Simon Wiesenthal did? Actually, Wiesenthal wrote the book to ask that question, what should he have done? And he wrote, in the book, there's an, a, a second section which has all these letters of different people offering answers. Who has the right to forgive a wicked man. And in asking that question, it's, it's first posed as a question to human beings, but it rises up to the court of God. A man who's done such despicable evil, does, he, does God have the right to forgive such an evil person? How does God remain just if he forgives this person freely by grace without demanding that person to pay anything? Well, I am Carl. I may not feel it that way. I certainly I don't feel it. I don't feel my sin 
the way I feel Carl's sin, but I know God feels my sin. My sin rises up before God. And does he have the right to forgive me? Is it just of God to offer me righteousness as a gift by faith? Well, that's what Paul has just shown us, that the gospel of Jesus Christ reveals the answer to this question, and only the gospel of Jesus Christ provides an answer to this question. How is it that holy God can extend love to man while remaining fully righteous in his just in his judgment? The gospel declares that man's sin can be paid for by God himself. The king can die for men, and the cross is where love and justice kiss. God has paid the penalty. God has remained just. God can offer salvation freely as a gift, and in fact, It cannot be offered any other way because there is no other way that man will be able to live up to it and receive it. It's by grace or it's not at all. So Paul concludes this section, 25b to 30, with with a few implications of the gospel. I'll just comment on them as I read the text. So 25b, he's he's just described the gospel of Jesus Christ and God has displayed Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. You see, in the past, from Adam all the way up through the disciples, God had not paid for the penalty of the sin of believers. the, the, The blood of the animals didn't pay for it. None of the rituals actually paid for it, but they still had to trust God. They had to cry out to the grace of God and trust in God for their salvation. They just didn't know what the payment was going to be, but God made a promise, I'm going to pay, and God was good on his promise. So we we don't see the righteousness of God. It's not revealed until the cross. He's not paid the promise yet. But at the cross, he paid the debt of every single one of his people. Everybody that he has given freedom to, that he's given grace to, that he's forgiven of their sin, he made good on that debt. He took their debt himself, and he paid it on the cross. So everybody in the past was looking ahead to the payment being made. Verse 26, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So God also has to show himself right for the people now who would believe in Jesus, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith. And he does. So from now on, All of us who get accepted as his children, that get accepted into his family, that are are declared righteous by him, all of us, God has paid our penalty on the cross. We look back to the payment. The, The saints of the old covenant looked ahead to the payment. We look back to the payment. The price is paid. God is just. He is righteous in his grace. And then there's another implication. This one applies to us in verse 27. Where then is boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. See, this religion always creates pride. Human religion creates pride. I have attained righteousness with God. It also creates judgment on those who haven't attained righteousness with God. 
It also creates doubt in us and insecurity because we're not sure if we've attained righteousness of God. But when we are moral, we can boast. But verse 27, if it's by grace, where's boasting? It's excluded. Who can boast over the other man? Which one of you paid the penalty? Which one of you lived up to God and became acceptable based on your righteousness? Which one of you? Which one of you is the good servant that stands out above everybody else? Nobody. Where is boasting? There is none because we're on the same playing field. We all receive it by grace. And then finally, the final implication in 29 and 30 is that it's for everybody. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Doesn't matter what country you're from. Doesn't matter what ethnicity you're from. It doesn't matter what sex you are. It doesn't matter what class you are. God is one. It's a free gift. It's available to everybody who would receive it by faith. And this is, this is where we'll end today. And the, the question is really mainly for you is have you received the gift of grace? Have you done that? If not, you need to go have a conversation with God. And if you have, how's your heart doing? Do you see how priceless this gift is that God has given you? Do you see it? Priceless. Reflect on the amazing grace, the amazing price that's been paid for you. It's truly, truly wonderful what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com. 